Today I want to tell you about the shocking betrayal of 19-year-old Sarah Stern. It took an aspiring horror movie director and a secret confession caught on camera to solve the mystery of what happened to her, and the person responsible just happened to be someone she'd trusted since middle school. Every Wednesday, this is where you're going to get twice the crime in half the time. Today, it's all about villains you wouldn't expect. In recap number two, I'm going to tell you the story of 13-year-old Mary Ann Measles and her horrible, no good, really evil friends. This story will leave you thanking the good Lord you're probably not in high school anymore. Chris is coming up with your first story, but first I need to give a quick thank you to today's sponsor. In the early morning hours of December 3rd, 2019, an Uber driver noticed an Oldsmobile abandoned on the side of the Shark River Bridge between Belmar and Neptune in New Jersey. When the police checked it out, the car was empty, but the keys were in the ignition. 19-year-old Sarah Stern had vanished. Sarah was an aspiring artist living with her dad and grandmother in Neptune. Her mother had died in 2013 after battling cancer. Six months before she disappeared, Sarah and a guy she'd known since middle school, a boy she thought was her friend by the name of Liam McAtasney, were going through her mom's things when they stumbled across a shoebox stuffed with cash. At first glance, she thought there might be as much as $100,000 in old 20s, 50s, and $100 bills. But as she dug through the box, she found a hidden note from her mother. It seems that her mother wanted her to have the cash, saying the money was her inheritance. Why it was hidden is unclear. But when she told her aunt about it, she warned her not to tell anyone, not even her father. Unfortunately for Sarah, it was too late. Liam was with her when she found it, and in his words, that was the type of money somebody would do anything for. And by somebody, he meant him and his roommate Preston Taylor, Sarah's date to her junior prom. The idea came to them as they were discussing what they might do with that kind of money. According to Preston, the conversation evolved into, well, what if we did have that type of money, specifically Sarah's money? That was when the idea to rob her came about. For the next six months, Liam and Preston plotted how they could get their hands on her inheritance. They considered getting her drunk and stealing her money, but they worried about getting caught, so they decided Liam would strangle her and take the cash. Then there was the question of what to do with her body. They talked about burying her at a campsite Liam's dad owned, or just leaving her at the house and hoping the police wouldn't figure out who did it. But ultimately, they landed on what they thought was a foolproof plan. The best way to cover it up would be to make it look like a suicide. On December 2nd, 2016, Liam texted Preston to tell him he was at the bank, which is what they called Sarah's house, and that he was going to take her out that day. And instead of telling you what happened from there, I want you to hear Liam say it himself in this secret recording taken by a friend of his named Anthony Curry. But before you listen, you need a little more background so it all makes sense. Liam and Anthony got close in high school. He told ABC's 2020 that the two of them bonded over music, movies, and the TV show The Sopranos. In his words, he practically lived at Liam's house and they hung out together a lot. On Thanksgiving 2016, about a week before it happened, Liam pitched a movie idea to Anthony, who was an aspiring horror movie director. In this pitch, he told a story about two friends who find a stash of money together. 
Then one friend strangles the other friend and throws her body off the bridge to make it look like a suicide. At the time, Anthony had no idea this pitch was actually a true story until he heard about Sarah's disappearance and Liam started Snapchatting him strange messages telling him he needed to tell him something urgently and asking if the cops had asked about him. Two months later, in January 2017, Anthony went to the police. He was willing to do whatever it took to bring closure to Sarah's family. He worked with detectives to bug his car, hoping he would have a conversation with Liam that might lead to his arrest. Their only advice? Act sort of like Donnie Brasco and ask him questions. Oh, and because Liam clearly did some deep research into things Hollywood says he should do to get away with it, he patted Anthony down to check for a wire before he literally gave him every single incriminating detail, including the motive and the plan before and after. Take a listen. This is the confession video the jury heard at trial. It was published by the Asbury Park Press, and I warn you, it's about 10 minutes of the most matter-of-fact graphic and disturbing conversations you'll ever hear. The worst part of it is, I thought I was walking out 50 grand, 100 grand in my pocket. She had one safe, and she took money out, and she only had 10 grand. And this money, I don't know if it was burnt or something, it's fucking old money, terrible quality. I don't even know if I can put any of it in the fucking bank. Right, because it'll probably look sketchy, right? It looks sketchy, and it'll look like it's Sarah's money, especially if it's a federal investigation. If they're looking for the guy who has the fucking old money. Right, because it's probably like the the old dollar bills and shit. It's not like the new shit, because the hundred dollar bills have changed now. Exactly. It's from the 80s, dude. It's old. And then, what she found in the house or something? out the front door 
I choke her out, drag her. My biggest problem was the dog, and her dog laid there and watched as I killed her. Didn't do anything. Her fucking dog. What kind of dog? Yeah, what kind of dog is that? It's like something, was it a big dog? It looks like a beagle, but it's like the size of a great day. Nobody was there? No, nobody was there. Even her dad wasn't there. He was in Florida. Yeah, you said that he was there. Yeah. So, I have to leave. I fucking dropped my phone at Sarah's house. My phone was at Sarah's house. Like, wait, you left your phone? Yeah, I lost it. I couldn't find it. I had to go to work. I had timed everything out so that. Why did you take your phone so left in your fucking pocket? Dude, what were you doing? Strangling someone? I couldn't find it, dude. It ended up being out in the driveway. Oh, it must have dropped there. You it must have dropped when I was crawling to the, get in the car. But I choke her out, drag her into the back, put her in the bathroom, and then I had to go straight to work. So Preston came over, took the body, put it in the bushes, and then I was at work. I had a full like night of work, except I left work a couple times, which looks sketchy. To look for my phone though, which is a reasonable like thing to do. It's kind of like me losing my phone is kind of a good thing, because the cops are like, oh, he's hanging out out there, he lost the phone, his phone, he's going back and forth between his house looking for it. And then I get off work that night, go straight over, Preston and I go over to her house, take her safe, bring that over to my house before we do anything. Then we take her body out of the bushes and drag it over to her back fence and I crawl, get into her car and I back up. She had, there's a security camera across the street. So I had to back, I had to act like her. I watched her every time she backed out. She does the same thing. So I backed out exactly like she did and drove off in the trunk. Now, put her in the passenger seat of her own car. And then, Preston and I had these walkie-talkies to communicate with. We just used them again. So I was driving, and I had her buckled in in the passenger seat. So she looks like she's just sleeping. She's just sitting up. And my, my plan was for me, I underestimated my own strength and how much a dead body would weigh. Because it's one it's weight. Yeah. I got up on top of the bridge to throw her off. My my plan was I was gonna throw her off, run over, jump over the divider and get in the person's car. And I go up, open the door, unhook her, pull her out, start dragging her to throw her over, and then cars start coming up. I see like headlights coming. I try to get her over and I can't fuck my leg up. Like the weight from her body, like made me fall and my leg like went up. So now I'm tripping, my leg's fucked up and there's three cars coming up. So I grab her body. Dude, I had superhuman strength, and I threw it in the car, and I fucking picked it up, and her feet were up here, and her foot, was, her head, her head was down there, and three cars go by, and I'm fucking losing my shit, because that easily could have been a cop. Yeah. And then, I mean, the police station is like right there. Yeah, yeah. And then Preston comes over the bridge, goes around, makes a U-turn, comes up behind me. 
two of us throw the body over, and then we grab. Plus, you needed help. I needed help. Yeah. She's not allowed to do with the girl, right? No. I'd say 160 pounds, max. So you just count it out and then fucking went behind her, just whatever they're looking? Mm-hmm. She likes screaming and shit? Or you had her so tight that it was like... I pretty much hung her, like... I just, I picked her up and had her just like dangling off the ground and she just pissed herself and said my name and then that was it. And it took me a half an hour to kill her. I thought I was going to be able to choke her out and have her out in like a couple minutes. I choked her out and then she was just laying there having a seizure or something. So then I just, I had to... I got a shirt and I just shoved it down her throat so she wouldn't throw up or anything and held my finger over her nose and set a timer. That's the only time I had my phone and it took me like a half an hour after I hit start. On the timer. This, this is the thing about like heights. There's so much shit that you can't account for. You don't know. Yeah. You, you don't know until it happens. The next month was just me getting interrogated by cops over and over and over again. Could, what, why? Because you were the last one to be with her? Yeah. And then you threw the phone, I guess? Through the phone calls? Do you know because it was just a known, it was part of my plan for them to know that we were hanging out. Because it, I needed to make it seem like we were better friends than we actually were so that they wouldn't question my behavior with her. Josh did. Josh is the only one that I've seen him question, but he wouldn't do anything. So you told him? No. You are the only person on this planet that knows besides Preston. And Preston doesn't know that you know. And I think we should probably get back to our house because Preston doesn't like this idea. He doesn't like that you didn't just come to the house. And if he knows that you know, I don't want him. You know what? I want there to be change. I'm a fucking rat, bro. Yeah. I mean, Brooklyn. The cops have a question. I, I know you. Know. I know you're not a rat, but we gotta we gotta play it safe. No, yeah, I understand. Yeah. It could be anyone, and I don't want Preston to, to think that he has to kill you and take you out because you are the only person that knows. Because I've tried to I've tried to imply that you might know, and he gets really upset. So maybe don't tell him. Don't tell him. Don't tell him. Yeah. But you're the only person besides the person that knows. And I told you that in the beginning. That's how it's going to be. I planned this thing out for like six months. I didn't get a lot of money, but I had enough money to just be like living comfortably in my house. Throwing parties all the time. Doing whatever the hell I want to do. I don't feel any different. Don't think about it. Did you catch that? Liam and Preston thought they'd be splitting $100,000 in cash, but they only ended up splitting about $9,000 between them. She never had as much money as they thought she did. According to the Washington Post, there was only $25,000 in that box, and Sarah had already spent a lot of that before he took her life. In the two months between her disappearance and that secret confession, detectives questioned Liam closely, knowing he was the last person to be seen with her. 
Here he is, captured on police body cam video, telling them a tall tale about what might have happened to Sarah. Yeah. Do you know what's going on here? Do you know why we're standing here talking to you? I, yeah, I have a pretty good idea. No, no, no. Do you know why we're standing here talking to you? Do you have any idea where Sarah is? I, Listen, this is... I mean, I know that her dad's taken money from her in the past. Uh, I think her mom was supposed to leave her money or something. I know she definitely has a lot of trust issues with her dad. So I've just been trying to help her out with that. And here he is again with a different story about a possible trip to Canada she might have taken. I just know she's been trying to get away. You can tell me she's going to Canada. Liam was on their radar from the beginning, but they weren't looking at Preston until he talked about him with Anthony on that recording. So they pulled him in for a questioning, and in the words of one detective, Preston confessed faster than anyone he'd ever questioned before. He took detectives to Sarah's house and walked them through what he saw when he came over to move her body. Take a listen. When I answered... When you entered, were the lights on in the house or were they off? The lights back here were off, but the kitchen and the living room lights were on. Okay. And this door was closed. This one I couldn't get open, but I was able to push this one open, enter, and Sarah was slumped in this corner right here. Okay. Um, and again, behind um, this door. Preston, you said, no, there's these two bifold doors here. The door to the left was in what position? It was closed. Okay. And did you try to open it? I tried to, was only able to get it about that far and realized that she was behind the door. Okay. And how about the right door? Were you able to open that fully? Yes. Okay. And uh, where? how was Sarah's body positioned in this bathroom? She was sitting like this, tucked into the corner and leaning over the toilet. Okay. And her feet were where? Sticking out into the room. So after he moved Sarah's body from the bathroom to underneath some bushes outside, they drove her to the bridge and threw her over the railing into the Shark River below. Then they left the car on the side of the road with the keys in the ignition and drove home in Preston's car. And all this so they could end up splitting less than $10,000. I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around this. At the house, Liam and Preston shared, investigators found the keys to Sarah's lockbox hidden inside a vent in the floor of Liam's bedroom. He was arrested in February 2017. The community was in shock. I found this quote in the Asbury Park Press that sums up the sentiment. This is from a classmate of Sarah, Preston, and Liam's. If you had a model of a best friend group, then that was them. So I think that's why the whole community is confused, especially like people in our class, who are all confused because they were like, that friend group was literally inseparable. But there was still a trial to be dealt with because Liam pled not guilty, which was quite a surprise. After all, the police had his confession on camera. They had Preston's confession to back it up. They had the stolen money and a hidden key. Seems pretty cut and dried, right? Hardly seems worth it to even go to trial, right? Uh, not so fast. The defense's big move was to claim that Liam's confession was actually an audition for his friend Anthony, the horror movie director. An audition. 
Preston, on the other hand, took a plea deal to be a witness for the prosecution and avoid tougher charges. In February 2019, Liam and Preston were found guilty, and a few months later, Liam was sentenced to life in prison. Preston got 18 years. Sarah's body has never been found. And that's your recap. As a quick reminder, you can always listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. But don't go anywhere because Amy's coming up with recap number two right after this. On July 15th, 1998, a decomposed body wrapped in a blanket and chains was found in Lake Lilinona in Bridgewater, Connecticut. Dental records gave her a name. 13-year-old Marianne Measles. She'd been taken from the parking lot of the Big Y supermarket in New Milford 10 months earlier, on October 19, 1997, while she was waiting in the car for her mother to pick something up from the store. And just 10 days before that, her mother had filed a complaint against a 19-year-old man named Alan Walter Jr., or AJ as he was called. Marianne had told her mother that AJ and another friend of his, a 21-year-old named Keith Foster, had pressured her into having sex with them. But Marianne refused to give police a statement about what happened, so neither AJ or Keith were arrested. But according to the News Times, a few days before Marianne disappeared, her mom confronted AJ and told him he was going to spend the rest of his life in jail for what he had done to her daughter. Strangely, when Marianne went missing from the Big White parking lot, no one seemed to make the connection to something else that had happened that day. Earlier that afternoon, Marianne called her mother for a ride from the New Milford Town Green. And while she was on the phone, three of her so-called friends were yelling and threatening to hurt her. Her mom picked her up, and on the way home, they stopped at the grocery store where Marianne vanished. But what they didn't know was that they had been they were being followed. And when she popped into the store, three of Marianne's friends dragged her out of the car, shoved her into a minivan, and drove away with her. And no one saw a thing. This seems like a good time to give you their names so I can stop calling them her friends. According to arrest affidavits obtained by the Hartford Current, the guy driving the minivan was Ronald Raishcock. The girl who actually owned the van was Maggie Mae Bennett. The guy who acted as lookout while they snatched her was Dean Dupont, better known as Dino. And June Seeger and AJ, you already met him, helped drag Marianne out of her car. The waiting inside the van was one more guy, Jeffrey Allen Boyette Jr. Two more people, Dorothy Hallis and Keith Foster, met up with them at the scene. All of them were in their late teens and early 20s. And together, these five men and three women were a perfect storm of evil. So what on earth were they doing hanging out with a 13-year-old girl in the first place? Right? Excellent question. According to Maggie, Marianne had been going through a rebellious phase. She'd been hanging out with their group, getting high, for about a month or two before the scene in the parking lot. So how the seventh grader even knew these older people is unclear. With a population of less than 30,000 people, New Milford was, and still is, I suppose, considered to be a safe, quiet place to live and raise a family. In fact, it's so picturesque that it served as the backdrop for the idyllic New England town that Adam Sandler's character was from in the movie Mr. Deeds, according to the intelligencer. But as we all know, looks can be deceiving. To make matters worse, the group dynamics were complicated, even before Marianne showed up. Maggie was dating AJ, Dorothy was with Keith, and June was with Jeffrey, but she was also sleeping with AJ. 
When young pretty Marianne started to become a fixture, well, you can almost see the word danger, like flashing, like a neon sign hanging in the air. It only took about a month for all five guys to either convince her or force her to sleep with them. Believing she was talking to a real friend, Marianne told June that Dino had forced her. Well, June told Dino, Marianna told her, and Dino told AJ, and AJ told him that they needed to scare her the, quote, Sicilian way, which apparently to AJ meant holding her head underwater until she agreed not to press charges. They drove her to a secluded spot near the Housatonic River, and Dorothy pulled her out of the van by her hair. She tried to escape, but June chased her and dragged her back to where the two other girls and five guys were gathered. And if she hadn't done that, well, maybe it would have ended there, but it didn't. Instead, a deadly group mentality took over and things got even more out of control. A word of warning, you're going to want to wash your brain out with soap when you hear what happened next. According to AJ, everybody just took turns hitting her. All of a sudden, Keith Foster came out of nowhere. He jumped on Marianne and started hitting her. Then Dino, AJ, and Keith violated her in the back of Maggie's van. Based on the report in the Hartford Current, the group's statements about what actually took place after that are a bit fuzzy. AJ says he wanted to scare her, so they forced her down an embankment to the river's edge and pushed her head underwater. He blames Dino for putting all of his weight on Marianne to hold her under. AJ says he told him he didn't want to hurt her, just scare her. And then, quote, he put more of his weight down. I said, let off her a little. And he said, no, no, no. And then I noticed I didn't see any more bubbles in the water. When they pulled her up, she was gone. He said he looked at Dino and asked him what they should do. So Dino dared him to violate her body in that way. Don't make me say it. AJ admitted he grabbed a blanket out of Maggie's van, put it on the ground, and did it while the others watched. Horrifyingly, he also claimed that Maggie had put the blanket in her van the day before, a blanket he had taken from the New Milford Public Works Department when he worked there two years before that. He said she also loaded chains and a padlock into the van and smirked like she knew what they were going to be used for. In Dino's version of events, after that horror in the van, AJ pushed him aside and started choking her while he, Dino, walked away to throw up at the sound of it, as if he was such a sensitive soul. And he says that when he turned around, she was wrapped in a blanket with chains around it and a padlock holding it all together. Again, according to the report in the Hartford Current, he told police he could hear Marianne mumbling inside the blanket and a male voice, not him apparently, say, AJ, she's still alive. So AJ and Dino threw her into the river, hoping she'd drown and be taken far away by the current. June had yet another version. She said she saw AJ and Keith take an oblong object out of the van and roll it into the water. She claims they told her it was a dog and she had no idea it was Marianne. Nearby was an abandoned pump house. According to June, Keith threw Marianne's clothes into an old washing machine that they found there. And then the eight of them went to a nearby marina to get high. Years later, police would find what was left of Marianne's t-shirt. For the next five years, no one knew what happened to her. No one except the eight of them, of course, and they couldn't seem to leave her family alone. 
especially Maggie. According to an interview with Marianne's little sister published in the Daily Beast, Maggie and her friends pretended like nothing happened, consoling the measles family whenever they ran into them around town and making up stories about what had happened to her. And one time, Maggie ran into Marianne's mom and she apologized for her loss and volunteered to babysit Marianne's surviving sisters. Finally, on October 15th, 2002, they were all arrested. Maggie flipped on her friends first and made a deal for 19 years in exchange for testifying against the rest of them. AJ told police, get this, he thought he should get 300 hours of community service, but then later he said he deserved two months in prison. He got 60 years. The rest of them got sentences ranging from 25 to 100 years. Maggie was also the first to be released. She got out early for good behavior in 2019. Thank you for spending some time with us today. If you like getting twice the crime in half the time, you're going to want to hit subscribe and give this podcast a five-star rating. It only takes a second, but it really helps us get the word out about this show. And thank you so much for your support. And until next time, take care.